Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oath do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, in Episode 24, State of California versus Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt, Michael and I are talking about the November 1999 and June 2005 murders of Paul Vados and Kenneth McDavid. Both formerly homeless men were befriended by Golay and Rutterschmidt, then insured for large sums of money based on false statements on multiple insurance company applications. After successfully murdering Paul Vados, the two doubled the insurance on Kenneth McDavid. An inquiry with LAPD by an insurance company investigator and a conversation between two detectives led to the realization that Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt each had insurance policies on Vados and McDavid. We'll talk about the investigation into the deaths of Paul Vados and Kenneth McDavid, the insurance policies taken out on the two men, and the women's insurance scams. Finally, we'll talk about the arrests, prosecution, and conviction of these geriatric killers dubbed Black Widows by the media. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm certainly excited to talk about this one because I believe as you were talking about it, um, I believe I actually seen a Deadly Women episode about them. I could be wrong, but I believe this was a Deadly Women yes, episode. Yes, a pretty darn you good. You likely one. did. I, I believe it was Deadly Women about uh, killers who wear masks. Yeah, and appear as one familiar. thing to the world. Yeah, um, there was yeah. also a Great American Greed episode. Um, sounds about right. And, pardon. That sounds about right. Sounds like they would fit yeah. the uh, fit the uh, bill on that. And it was a great American Greed episode. I was hoping to find it on Peacock, but unfortunately, for some reason, it wasn't available. Um, this part part of that particular season is available, but this episode wasn't. What was the show? Um, you but were it is a good for? episode. The Black Widows, 
on American no. Greed. Oh, on American Greed. Okay. Yeah, American I don't Greed, know if yeah. that one – I'll look tonight, but I don't know if that shows on uh, Hulu. I know all the investigation <laughs> discoveries are. Right. Um, and then um, – yeah, that was a, it was a great episode, and and I wanted to find a clip of Olga and Helen when they were in custody after they were arrested, but I never could find a a clean enough clip for us to play. So uh, while I talk, I'm I'm looking at various articles to find to try and find the script for uh, the stuff Olga was telling Helen when they were in the police station. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so we have, uh, we have a little bit to go through tonight because it, it, there, there's a lot involved. Okay. Well, I'll try and, to keep um, my, my, my interruptions to a minimum. <laughs> yeah. Any questions, just, you know, feel free. Okay. All right. So to start off, we're going to talk a little bit about the victims. Of course, again, not a lot is known about them. Uh, Paul Vados was uh, – he immigrated to the United States from Hungary uh, sometime during the 1950s. I think it was in 1956. He worked uh, in a union job, and I think he actually retired from Apple Computers uh-huh. in the – sometime around the 1980s, maybe early 1990s. His wife died in the 1980s. Um, and he had uh, problems with alcohol. Uh, he was an alcoholic. Uh, after his wife died, he either had a falling out with his daughter or he just moved and lost touch with his daughter. He went to Northern California for a time, and then he ended up back in Los Angeles. Uh, and then Kenneth McDavid is from Northern California or Central California from Sacramento area, um, he was – he went to school. He played sports. He was a businessman for some years, and then he fell on hard times, lost touch with his family, and ended up in the Los Angeles area. Uh, the perpetrators in this case are Helen Galay. She was born in Texas in the 1930s. Apparently, her father died when she was very young. Her mother couldn't, either couldn't raise her or needed to go find a job somewhere. So Helen ended up kind of shuffling around among family members. Uh, and this may be why she ended up the way she is. Okay. Because... She she didn't have that strong bond with anybody as far as family. She didn't have it with her mother. She lost her father. She lived with relatives. Um, she had some cousins and uh, who were surprised by where she ended up when all was said and done, but it doesn't sound like they were that close to her either. Uh, and then Olga Rutterschmidt, she was also from Hungary. Um, she lived in Hungary during World War II. Um, so she was, you know, she was 
there when Nazis occupied, and she was there during bombing raids of the United States. Um, she's a she is and probably always was something of a strange bird. Apparently, when she was an adolescent, uh, there was a bombing, and her building was struck, and she was buried in the rubble of the building. She claims that an injury to her hand ended her brilliant piano career, but again, this may just be Olga talking. So Although she was she, a pianist, but she turned to murder. Yeah, but and she did. <laughs> she did play piano, and she had neighbors who said she actually was talented in spite of the hand. She did have hmm. a deformity of her of I think a right hand. Um. Uh, she came to the United States in about 1956, around the time of the um, – there was a revolution where somebody was trying to overthrow the communist government, and it didn't work out. Um, she was married to uh, a gentleman by the name of Andre. They lived in Los Angeles. They had a coffee shop for a while. At some point, he went back to Hungary without Olga. Mm-hmm. And either died in Hungary or just never returned to the United States. Um, another thing, Helen Galay, this is an this is an interesting thing. Helen Galay spent her early adulthood basically running cons, marrying men, taking them for everything they were worth, and then moving on. She had two daughters with her husband, Vernon Golay. And then later, she had a daughter named Kesha with another man who was not Vernon Golay. Um, okay. In the 1990s, she worked for an, a real estate investor in Los Angeles, uh, and it was while working for him she somehow got a power of attorney granting her rights over his business and properties. When he died of cancer in 1999, she used that power of attorney to get control of several million dollars worth of real estate. And the power of attorney held up in court, so his heirs were unable to recover the property from her. Carol Baskin, um, anyone? Some people have questions as to whether that power of attorney was legitimate, although nothing has ever been proven. And certainly in the in the estate challenge. That his estate was never able to prove that the the power of attorney was not a genuine bona fide uh, power of attorney. So she had high end properties in Los Angeles. She had income from those properties. She had a beautiful house in Santa Monica. Uh, drove a Mercedes. Um, so d- she didn't really need to be involved in the scheme. Although I think she was just greedy and wanted money for money's sake. Uh, yeah, Olga, I mean, on the other hand, one leg and all of a sudden you think you're invincible. 
Olga, on the other hand, was living in a Section 8 subsidized apartment in Los Angeles. She was getting Social Security disability and apparently running scams with slip and fall lawsuits and claims around town. And she had a bank account in her estranged and or deceased husband's name. So the money that she made from those scams went into that account. So since it was never in her hands, she continued to qualify for any and all government public benefits that she was receiving. Medicaid, Section 8, Social Security Disability, anything that was need-based, she appeared to have the need, even though in that, in that bank account there were probably several hundred thousand dollars at any one time. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, um, so she was just so the fraud. scheme. Yeah. yeah, she she was she was a fraudster for sure. And she was more um she was more brazen about it. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So the scheme in insurance, life insurance specifically, there are different types. There's term insurance, which is the least expensive. It's for a term of years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Strictly life insurance. There's no investment component. Um, You pay if you die before the end of the term. And I guess when the term ends, you can renew it. Um, then, you know, the benefit is paid. Then there's whole life insurance, and that has an investment component. So part of your premium with a whole life policy is an investment that you can, if you keep the policy long enough, you can actually, you know, have some benefit. And it also, if you die during the term of the policy, that investment goes into the ultimate death benefit, if I'm remembering working for an insurance company correctly. Uh, And I may not be, so anybody out there listening that's familiar with how these insurances work, please feel free to call us and correct me. Um, I didn't give our number. Michael, would you give our number real quick? Yeah, of course. It's... uh... 347-989-1171, Three four seven nine eight nine one one seven one. But I think you're right. I've I've always heard it kind of goes into a trust, or it goes through a process. You don't get it like as soon yeah. as the person dies, unless they die of like natural causes. I don't believe, and maybe even then you and don't get it automatically. With the whole with the whole life policy, you can borrow against it. And like I said, at the end of the at the if you don't borrow against it, you can actually increase the face value of the policy. Mm-hmm. But again, I could be wrong. Um, I'm not talking about the ultimate death benefits on any policy. Ultimately, when the person dies, you get the benefits, unless in a term life policy, if the term expires and you don't renew it, you don't get anything. Uh, a whole life policy, I, I don't know that it necessarily has a term 
There may be some right. that do and some that don't. Uh, and then there's accidental death and dismemberment insurance. And that is usually what people who have pre-existing medical conditions, that's about the only kind they can get. And it does not pay if you die as a result of a medical condition or as a result of a disease or of just natural causes. It only hmm. pays if you die in some sort of accident. Okay. Um, general insurance principles are, first of all, you don't want to be overinsured. You want to have enough insurance to protect your family for a year or maybe two years of a salary, for example, with a husband, with a wife and children. You know, you want a benefit that's going to pay final expenses, funeral expenses, and maybe a year or two mortgages, tuition, et cetera. Um, you don't want somebody to be overinsured and then have someone have a motive Which, to by the way, hasten their death. That money, that money, uh, I was just adding it up in my head. If we're talking two years of my two years of my salary and then and then uh funeral expenses alone, you're still looking at seventy to a hundred thousand dollars at least. Right. So Correct. don't think that, you know, this person trying to sell you a $100,000 life insurance policy is trying to pick, upsell you by any stretch of the imagination. Correct. That is correct. Um, and one of the problems with life insurance is that because of antitrust laws, no one company and no state regulatory agency has a database that keeps track of policies across companies. So if you apply to MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, American General, and Great West, and get a policy from each one, none of them is going to know. If you say, no, I don't have any other policies, none of them is ever going to know that you have policies with these other companies. Uh, and I, I listened to a couple of uh, podcasts about this case in in preparing for it. And, you know, one of the criticisms was, well, why don't the insurance companies know? Because antitrust laws prevent them from putting together a database that monitors what their competitors are doing and – you know, let other insurance companies know who's getting insurance from whom. Um, it's just a weird, a weird thing. And, you know, that's generally, I mean, there's not a database of who has auto insurance, but there are databases of who's made auto insurance claims. So, um, but yeah, that's something that's, at this point, now I would I would propose that our state regulatory agencies should perhaps consider 
having insurance companies operating, life insurance companies operating within their states to give them some basic information about who they're insuring and how much they're insuring them for. Right. And, you know, when they sold them the insurance policies so that if there's somebody out there trying to pull a scam like this, the individual insurance companies can contact the state regulatory agency and say, hey, you know, is this person an insured on any other life insurance policies? Um, or is it, is they are they an insured or an owner of any other life insurance policies? Mm-hmm. And then also generally in life insurance, um, you have to have an insurable interest, which is created by blood, marriage, or some familial relationship. So I could not insure Michael, and Michael could not insure me. Right. Unless he and I were business partners and clear and convincing was making money. Huh. And then we would each be able to take out policies so that in the event something happened to Michael, I would have, you know, some, some recovery. And if something happened to me, Michael would have some recovery. Yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, but it, that we would have, and we would we would have to show that to the insurance company that you know, mm-hmm. clear and convincing makes fifty thousand dollars a year, right? And we're fifty fifty co owners, so we each make twenty five thousand. Well, we could probably get twenty five thousand or fifty thousand dollar policy on each other. Yeah, I guess that's. But absent that. Kind of like we an employer can. taking that life insurance out on an employee or something. Right. And and business partners have key man policies. Um and and business investors can take out policies. But again, they have that insurable interest because of the joint venture that they're in. Right. So um, and then in this particular case, every state has its own laws governing uh, insurance business within their state. And that defines the relationships between insured and insurer. It defines how claims have to be handled. It defines, you know, what restrictions insurers can put into their contracts. Um, and it's it's very complicated, and it requires literally researching the individual state law. But for the purposes of this show and this episode, in California, with regard to life insurance, they have a provision in their state law that says if you have a life insurance policy for more than two years, then the insurance company cannot void that policy even if they discover everything about it was false, if it's been more than two years. And the two years is referred to as a contestability period. So if you get a policy on June 1st, 2020, and there's a two-year contestability period, you can't make a claim on that policy until until after June first, twenty twenty two. 
Right. If you make a claim before June 1st, 2022, the insurance company has a right legally to investigate the claim, to investigate you as a beneficiary, and to look at, with a fine-tooth comb, all the circumstances of the issuance of that policy. And if they find any problems, they have a right to cancel the policy and refund your premiums. Um, Now, in California, the exception to that contestability period is if it's found at any time that the owner of a policy had no insurable interest in the insured, then the policy can be voided. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, So in this scheme, Helen's role was basically to bankroll. She would pay rent. She would provide some money for expenses, living expenses. Right. And um, she would pay the policy premiums. In some cases, she paid 100% of the expenses and only got 50% of the benefit in some of the policies. Uh, Olga's role was, I think, to find the the targets uh, and then to kind of, during that two-year period, kind of be a minder, make sure that they're uh, continuing to be the lone wolf that they need to be in order for this to get for Olga and Helen to get away with what they're going to do. Right. Because you can't have somebody with too many ties to people who are going to question why um, they're letting these two strangers take out life insurance policies on them. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, and in in some cases, and, and the reason this fell apart in a way is because Helen and Olga each took out policies independently, Paul Vados, but to a greater extent on Kenneth McDavid. And that's what raised the red flags. And then also... These women are cutthroat bitches because at one point after Paul Vados dies, Olga contacts one of the insurance companies and tells them not to pay Helen because the whole thing was a scam. Uh That is funny. So, I mean, they're cutthroat bitches and they'll cut their own noses off to spite their face. Right. If it's going to screw the other woman. Uh Um, So no honor among thieves. So, beginning about 1997, um, they put Paul Vados up in an apartment in Los Angeles. Olga serves as sort of a caretaker, but she only visits him once or twice a month to bring groceries. She takes him to get a money order to pay his rent every month. Um, she wasn't there on a daily basis or even a weekly basis necessarily. 
the on-site manager at his apartment complex and her minor child really were the ones who sort of looked out for Vados. They brought him food more on a daily basis than, than Olga ever did. Uh, when they found him outside, wandered around drunk, they got him back into his apartment. Um, you know, so they really were concerned for him. In November of 1999, on November the 8th, Vados' body was found in an alley in Los Angeles. It appeared that he had been working under a vehicle and then had been crushed by that vehicle. However, there were no parts from a vehicle, nor did anyone report such an accident to authorities when it occurred. Um, The reason they believe that Vados was working under the vehicle when it crushed him is because he did not have injuries to his lower legs, which he would have had had he been upright when the car initially or vehicle initially struck him. Oh, shit. Um, He had no identification on him. And so he was unidentified. At some point, the manager of the apartment complex contacted Olga and told Olga that Paul Vados was missing. Um, It's kind of unclear, but at that point, Olga may have actually told them that Vados was dead, that he'd been killed in an accident. Oh, shit. And she she promised to come by and deal with the stuff in his apartment. Um, when she and Helen came to the apartment eventually, they said, oh, just throw it all away. They didn't give a shit. Right. Um, of course. So uh, they, I think they realized when they didn't immediately get a call from authorities saying, we found this man in this alley. Do you know who he was? They realized they screwed up in an effort to distance themselves from his death, they also made it impossible for anybody to know that he was was. dead. Who he was. (laughs) So then they had to backtrack and they had to go make a missing persons report. And at some point, Vados was identified through fingerprints. And then I presume Helen and Olga confirmed his identity and claiming to be the only relatives he had in the world, um, they signed for his body with the coroner and buried it in an unmarked grave. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then they began collecting on the insurance policies. And the scam was that Olga would say she was the cousin and Helen would say she was a fiancé. Oh, Jesus. And that's why they were insuring. They ended up collecting, even with having to pursue litigation in at least one case, they ended up collecting approximately over $800,000 on Paul Vados. Um, so 
that was pretty good. Now, yeah. one would think, hey, uh, Helen's already got money. She's got these properties. Olga is living on public assistance, and she's got all this money hidden in an account in her husband's name. You'd think that'd be enough. But right. in 2002, it's not. They decide we did it, we got away with it, let's do it again. Well, of course. It's almost like a endless free cash flow. Right. So, um, so in 2002, they meet Kenneth McDavid. And actually, at the same time, they met a, a man named Jimmy Covington, who went to the same church to get assistance as a homeless person, uh, as Kenneth McDavid. They put McDavid up in an apartment. And then in 2004, around 2004, leading me to suspect that they weren't giving him much money to live on, he invited friends to come live in the apartment with him. It was like a studio apartment. Right. He sublet it. But... Well, he see Helen got the lease in her name, and then she was subletting to Kenneth. Right. Kenneth brought these other people in, friend. but the reason and, and but he was still there. But the reason he wanted them to come live there is he wanted them to help pay for food, and pay for cable. Uh, and at one point, Patrick Lemay, one of the one of the friends who Kenneth had uh, McDavid had met while living on the streets. Um, he asked Kenneth McDavid, McDavid told LeMay that he had taken out an insurance policy as good faith for these women. And LeMay didn't think that sounded right. You know, if they want to bring you and get put you in an apartment and help you, that's all well and good. But you don't need a life insurance policy for that. So... You know, this is where some of their they they were afraid of their control of McDavid slipping away. So then Olga and Helen try to drive the roommates away, and they they were persist persistent. Uh, they tried to get the apartment manager to do it, but the apartment ma- manager said, "I can only evict you, and if I evict you, they got to go too." Right. And even though the apartment manager explained. Um, Olga and Helen both got aggressive and insulting with the woman. Oh, shit. I would have been like, screw screw all of y'all. I would have filed eviction and evicted the bitch and put right, everybody out. Absolutely. But I think even this woman kind of felt bad for Kenneth McDavid. And somebody said Kenneth McDavid was terrified of Olga. Olga was very belligerent and aggressive. Um, and if you watch the American Greed, if you can find it, hopefully it'll come back on, come back up and on demand. If you watch the American Greed, you get an idea of her, her belligerent, aggressive nature. Um, so anyway, they end up driving the roommates away. They bring in an armed guard to actually stay in the apartment from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. to make sure McDavid doesn't bring anybody else in. 
And then in early 2005, they decide he can't be trusted in an apartment, and they start putting him up in hotels around town. What the fuck? So um, in June, on June 21st, early, early June 22nd, McDavid's body is found dead in an alley in West Hollywood, I believe. I didn't see that coming. Um, He, too, is lying on the ground. He has no fractures or injuries to his lower legs, but he has crush injuries as though he was run over by a car. Luckily, in that alley, there were two businesses with, uh, with surveillance cameras, and there was another business with a camera that took one-minute photographs. So, you know, took a photo every, every minute. And so with McDavid, unlike with Vados, with Vados, they had nothing. They had no idea of a, of a vehicle. They had no idea when exactly it happened, what happened, anything of that nature. Um, so they were never really able. It kind of became a hit-and-run cold case. Because there were, you know, there were no car parts in the alley to give them an idea of a make and model of a vehicle, uh, give them an idea of where to look for damage on a vehicle, or look for a vehicle that's had certain damage repaired. Uh, but with McDavid, they have at least two uh, sources where they can get an idea of the vehicle, and the vehicle that they can identify in that video is a either a Ford Taurus or a Mercury Sable station wagon. Um, they also have a time because the, the videos were time-stamped and there was some differential between one video and the other, but a general time. Uh, and they also have the, the body, you know, the time the, body's, the body was discovered by gentlemen who were in a, store playing backgammon Uh, and one who was trying to leave and couldn't leave because there was a body in the alley Um, they also of course immediately phoned police so uh, Helen and um, uh, Olga are eventually contacted by police because They've left enough information on Kenneth McDavid for police to track back to his former apartment. And then in the former apartment, they find out about Helen and Olga. How convenient. Um, yeah. So then Helen and Olga start making, start putting in their claims. And um, the problem is, is that some of the policies that they obtained on Kenneth McDavid were within the two-year contestability. He died in June, and the policies had been issued in August of 2003. Oh, the bitches just couldn't wait two more months. So I think that they're – I think – I honestly think that their control of McDavid was slipping. Right, absolutely. And that's why I said, you know, I couldn't see that coming. 
because they were already and having to so, so much trouble. In June, um, the another interesting thing on autopsy uh, with McDavid, they found sedatives. They found Ambien. They found Vicodin. They found. Um, uh, a seizure medication, and they found a, uh, no, the seizure medication is blood. All these things would have made him very drowsy, plus our, uh, plus alcohol. So they, um, you know, they, they theorized that he was probably not conscious when, uh, he was struck. So because some of these policies are within the contestability period, one of the insurance companies decides to go ahead and get an investigator. The investigator speaks to the police. He speaks to California insurance authority. Um, and He's the one that really kind of put two and two together because somehow or another he discovers the policies, Paul Vados, and he discovers Olga and Helen's names. And when he brings that to the LAPD, that gets Dennis Kilcoin, who was investigating McDavid's death, and a an investigator who had been investigating Vados's death, they're in the robbery homicide division together and they're sitting at, you know, desk near each other and they start talking about these two accidents, hit and runs that are similar. The guys have the same injuries, same crush injuries, same lack of injury to lower legs. Um, they were found in alleys. They were, uh, they don't know with Vados, it may be that at that time, the sensitivity of testing wasn't enough for them to find these particular drugs. Basically, during the you know late 90s, they looked for pot, they looked for cocaine, they looked for illicit drugs. They didn't look for prescription-type drugs that, you know, like Vicodin and, and hydrocodone and Ambien and things like that. Whereas now the te the testing sensitivity is different. And so they find, they're finding drugs that, um, that they didn't, they didn't pick up on in the nineties to find it. You had to be looking for it. Whereas now you'll just get it. So, and the fact that Helen and Olga were involved with both victims and had all these insurance policies on each of the victims, that pretty much sealed the deal as far as um, tying them together. As they continued investigating, they found that on the night of McDavid's death, person calling herself Helen Golay, contacted AAA and said, my car broke down. I need you to come tow me. And the tow truck driver arrived 
and there was an elderly woman, although the 20-year-old jerk of a tow truck driver uh, believes that a 40-year-old is elderly, which is ridiculous, but uh, I'll just leave it at that. And um, he towed the vehicle that had broken down to an area behind Helen's house in Santa Monica from West Hollywood. Um, Police began tailing Helen and Olga, and they're continuing their investigation, but they, they don't want to let, you know, these two running free in the wild. And during that process, they see Olga with a man by the name of Joseph Gabor, another Hungarian immigrant, uh, who lives in an apartment that was actually in a building owned by the Hungarian Reformed Church. And they see her going with him to banks and um, taking him around town. And they get a little concerned. And then one of the officers who's involved in surveillance of Olga actually sits next to her at an internet cafe while she's trying to fraudulently open a credit card in somebody else's name because Olga was a bit of, was a scammer. I mean, she knew how to play one credit card, pay off the balance and never pay anybody. Right. Absolutely. Um, to keep just getting credit card after credit card after credit card. She also liked to brag about not paying your income taxes. Um, so she was a scammer and they also discovered that Olga or that Helen and Olga had applied with AAA for a policy on a man named Jimmy Covington. And it was then that they realized that they're already out searching for victim number three, and they don't want to risk having another victim. Um, So they decide that they're going to get together. It ended up being a joint investigation between federal and state uh, or federal and LAPD. And basically they had multiple insurance policies on, on Paul Vados and on Kenneth McDavid. And then they attempted to take one out on Jimmy Covington. And so every false statement on those applications, which were mailed to Helen and Olga, and then mailed back to the insurance companies. Every false statement is a count of mail fraud. So they had plenty of evidence because on the applications, they, they represented themselves as cousin, fiance. Um, I think on, on some of the applications, Helen made herself younger. Because Kenneth McDavid was in his 50s. Nobody's going to believe he's engaged to a 70-year-old woman. So she said she was in her 50s or she was in her 60s. Right. Um, They lied about Kenneth McDavid's income. They said he was an investor and he made $100,000 a year and had, you know, had a a worth assets over a million dollars. That was a lie. Kenneth McDavid, you know, had never had never made. I don't think Kenneth McDavid in his entire life had made a hundred thousand dollars all the years that he worked. 
Um, he certainly never made it in one year. Uh-huh. Um, they also lied about uh, him being a screenwriter. They lied about him being a real estate investor. Um, they just lied, 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 lied. And so that's federal crime. Because the funny, the funniest thing to me is when they contacted the insurance companies, they didn't want an agent to come out and meet with them. So they would say, no, no, I don't want to meet with an agent. I just want you to send me the applications and I'll send them back. Ah. And the the irony of that is if they had met with the with the uh, agent and he had filled everything out and then put it in his little briefcase and taken it back to the office the next day, the feds probably would have had a very difficult time on some of the fraud allegations because the application wasn't, wouldn't have been put, if it was put in the mail at all, it would never have been put in the mail by Helen or Olga. So, and, and every false statement is a count. So, you know, where they had 16 and 18 policies on Kenneth McDavid, every false statement, if there's three in each policy, multiply that by 18, and that's how many counts of mail fraud or wire fraud. So uh, the feds decide to get an arrest warrant in May of 2006. And go ahead and get Olga and Helen off the streets so that they cannot do this to another victim. And they're continuing their investigation. They're, you know, and the, and the LAPD is continuing its investigation. So they arrest Helen and, and Olga. And for Olga, I don't think it really makes that much difference. But with Helen, Helen was a vain woman. Helen had her hair in the bouffant hairdo that was popular in the 60s and 70s. Huh. And Helen was dressed to the T with her makeup and, you know, jewelry. And so they showed up in the wee, 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 wee hours of the morning. And they bring Helen and Olga out of their apartments in their pajamas. And like I said, for Olga, Olga was like a tomboy, very athletic, um, you know, a, a tough chick. So it probably wasn't really that big a deal, but for Helen, it was probably devastating because her face wasn't on, her hair was a mess. I could just imagine my my grandmother, um, who was old, who is older than than Helen and Olga, granted. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine if if she had been arrested by the police for anything, <laughs> and she didn't have her hair done or her her face on, she would have oh been devastated. Goodness. Oh my! I mean, goodness. think about it. Okay, so. 
Uh, so they arrest him, and they take him down to Parker Center, which is like the, the LAPD head, you know, the LAPD headquarters. And, uh, you know, you're at Parker Center. There are cameras everywhere. There are signs that say you are being recorded. And they right. put it in an interrogation room. And there are probably signs in there that say you are being recorded. And they're in this interrogation room, and Olga has, she is pissed. She, she knows this is Helen's fault because Helen took out policies on McDavid that she didn't share with Olga. Oh, good God. And that raised red flags. Right. Now, Olga's forgetting she had some policies on McDavid and Vados that she uh-huh. wasn't sharing with Helen. And she's also forgetting that she once contacted an insurance company and told them that the Vados claim was a scam. But um, so she's she's chewing Helen a new asshole, and I wish I I wish I'd been able to find a good copy of this video, because you know Olga is from Hungary and she's got the Hungarian accent. You know this is your fault. You make too many insurances. You make too many extra insurances. You were greedy. That's the problem. And she's and Helen's sitting there and Helen's the little Texas. Southern Belle-esque woman. Oh, no. You know, this won't do. I didn't do anything. I don't understand. What is happening? Who's doing this to me? Well, Helen's in there saying, um, you know, Olga, I don't want to talk to you. Olga, they might be listening. Olga, please, you need to be quiet. <laughs> and Olga is right. just going on and on and God, on. God, shut up. Olga is on, but, you know, Helen's not going to say, Olga, for the love of God, shut the fuck up, you know. And so they, eventually Helen tries, Helen tries, God bless her. She starts talking to Olga and she's like, okay, come on, this is our defense. Olga, you you know Kenneth, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted us to have this. This was good faith. He was paying us back because we supported him for all that time. And mm-hmm. and initially, Olga seems to be going along with the story. And then all of a sudden, she goes, yeah, I was the cousin and you were the fiancé. Baloney. Oh, Jesus Christ. And I think that's when Helen was like, oh, Jesus, we're going up the fucking river. <laughs> right. So... So um, they record, uh, they, they've searched Helen and Olga's house. They found Olga had rubber stamps so that they would only ever have to have their victim sign one or two policies. Oh, shit. So the victim was not even aware of how many policies they had taken out. Oh, shit. Um, and... Olga had rubber stamps for a lot of people. The identities of all the people has never, I've never even been, you know, uh, revealed. 
but uh, hopefully those those rubber stamps are in evidence somewhere in the bowels of LAPD. Um, they had and they found a note in Helen's car with a license partial license plate number and a partial VIN number for a 1999 Mercury Sable, which matches the vehicle description given to AAA on the night McDavid died. In fact, about 30 minutes before his body was found is when the AAA call was placed. Hmm. Using that partial VIN number and the partial uh, license plate number, they're able to track down the Mercury Sable and buy it from the guy who purchased it from a lien sale because after they used it to kill Kenneth McDavid, they left it for a little while behind Olga's place, and then the city of Santa Monica apparently didn't tow it quick enough. So they took it over to Hollywood, and it got multiple tickets in Hollywood. Somebody was moving it around because it was getting tickets at different addresses around a mile from Olga's apartment. Hmm. But Okay. It it wasn't towed, and then finally Hollywood towed it, and around July of 2005. So, but again, and this this proves once again, as I've said with Rodney Reed, if his defense attorneys had really wanted Jimmy Finnell's truck, they could have gotten it. They could have found it, because once again, LAPD. A year after Kenneth McDavid dies, they find the 1999 Mercury Sable. They buy it back from the guy who bought his lien sale, and then they have it and are able to examine it and obtain evidence linking it to Kenneth McDavid's murder, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So they also get bank records. They get Olga's notes. Uh, Olga liked to write as much as she liked to talk. And so she would, you know, she kept track of what Helen spent on these different uh, ventures of theirs. And um, so she was, you know, she allowed Helen to get a little bit bigger piece of the pie on some of the cases, on some of the claims, because Helen did put out all the money. Um, But... uh, it, she she's just she's crazy. Well, not really. She's evil. Sure. And so they uh, they're in they're in jail. Uh, they've got federal wire fraud, fraud and mail fraud. They've got state uh, after the searches after they recover the sable uh, after they find out they they talk to the guy who sold the sable. And they find out Olga bought it. Um, they've tied them to that. They've tied it to Kenneth McDavid's murder. Olga and Helen were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, interestingly enough, I think we've talked about this before. While it's more likely than not that Helen brought McDavid to that alley got his body out in the ground, ran it over, broke the fuel line on the car, 
and then drove it to the Chevron station and called AAA. It doesn't matter. It could have been Olga in the car driving it. It could have been Helen in the car driving it. It could have been Helen's daughter driving it. It could have been somebody else we don't even know about. doesn't matter. They still were part of the conspiracy to commit murder. And they each did overt acts to carry that conspiracy through. Purchasing the vehicle. Paying the rent. Paying the premiums on the insurance policies. Filling out the insurance applications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all, you know, overt acts as part of the conspiracy. So during the pretrial and into the trial, uh, Helen's attorney was uh, constantly complaining about her not being able to get enough sleep in jail. Because when you are in custody awaiting trial or uh, even in the pretrial process, if you have to go to court on a on a given day, they often wake you up at about six. Well, no, they often wake you up sometimes three, four, five, six o'clock in the morning. Um, you get dressed, you get on a bus, <laughs> you get downtown for seven o'clock in the morning, and court might not start till ten thirty. Right? Yeah, that's kind of funny. Oh, my client's inconvenience because they're in jail. Right. And, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, you, you, you wait until everybody who had court that day is finished with court that day. So you might not get back to the jail until 10 o'clock at night. Um, you know, there, it's not, there's not, not going to be a taxi service that's going to let you get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and leave the jail to get to court at 1030. That ain't ever going to happen. And and considering the charges that they were facing, uh, during their conversation, Olga talked about the fact that she regretted not leaving and going back to Europe a month before they were arrested. Apparently, she was thinking about it. Uh, She was also thinking about running the same scam in Canada. Uh, which she talked about on that recording as well, because she just don't know when to shut the hell up. Right. Um, so uh, he complained about her being able to sleep and not getting enough sleep and therefore not being able to help him. And it was uh, a tiresome uh, routine every time they had a pretrial hearing or just about every day at trial the attorney would get up and and go into this long litany of, you know, all the problems that Helen has because she's special. And she shouldn't be treated like other inmates. Huh. You know, she should, she should be. And I, I think that they had tried to get bail and the judge was not giving them bail. So, um, Prior to being arrested, Helen had filed three lawsuits to enforce on three of the policies that she had on McDavid. The insurers removed those cases to federal court, I believe, 
probably around the time that Helen and Olga were arrested. And the attorneys who had filed the suits, more likely than not, probably didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so those cases were removed to federal court. Um, One of the policies was declared void, and the claim was completely dismissed in September of 2006. A second policy actually went through the summary judgment procedure, and the insurer's summary judgment uh, motion was granted, and they were awarded costs in January of 2007, and then the third policy was also declared void. Uh, Basically, those policies were declared void because Helen did not have an insurable interest. Uh, a couple of the other policies, a couple of other McDavid policies were also declared void um, by the insurers. I don't know. I don't know if Helen did follow through on all of her threats to sue, uh, because that worked with with Vados when a couple of the companies were a little hesitant. Helen threatened to sue, and they decided not to fight. So. Um, so the prosecution, the case went to trial, I believe it was 2008, because California, a lot like Arizona and Florida, can often take a significant period of time to actually get to trial, um, especially, I think, in Los Angeles County. The prosecution had a very strong case. It was 100% entirely circumstantial. But it's extremely strong circumstances. You've got, you know, the manner and circumstances of both Paul Vados and Kenneth McDavid's deaths. You've got the common thread with Helen and Olga having all these life insurance policies on both men. Uh, They've got the actual car that killed Kenneth McDavid because they've got his DNA on the undercarriage of the vehicle. They've got Helen's note in her handwriting, and they had handwriting examiners examine the rubber stamps and the the different notes and things that they found and confirm that those notes were written by Helen, showing that she had knowledge of the 1999 Mercury Sable. Uh, They had the salesman who sold Olga the Mercury Sable. Uh, The car was purchased in the name of a woman named Hillary Adler. Hillary Adler's License or purse had been stolen from a health club, possibly by Olga, possibly by Helen's daughter Kesha. Um, regardless, Olga, at the time she was arrested, had copies of Hillary Adler's driver's license. Um, so then they had the call on uh, the night of McDavid's death to AAA from the member, Helen Gallet, uh, while, again, the driver said the woman was elderly, couldn't say whether it was Helen or not. It was more likely than not Helen. Um, and they had all the false statements on the applications and the fact that uh, Helen and Olga claimed these men's bodies representing themselves on official documents as the sole living relatives of these people 
and they had absolutely no relation to these people at all. Um, they also had, uh, like I said, all the false statements on the applications, uh, the false statements about income earned by Kenneth McDavid, by his profession, by his net worth, his assets. The defense um, had a very difficult road to hoe. Helen's defense was basically... The insurance companies are just conspiring against her to avoid paying. Her attorney pointed fingers at her daughter, uh, pinning not only the theft of Hillary Adler's purse on Kesha, but also trying to claim that it was Kesha who, um, who ran over Kenneth McDavid and killed him. They also picked apart witnesses and evidence. They, you know, claimed the tow driver didn't identify Helen. Helen wasn't the one who bought the car. And uh, both Helen and Olga, basically their attorneys kind of said, well, you know, they were, yeah, they were committing insurance fraud, but that's all it was. They didn't kill anybody. Um, That's all this ever was, was insurance fraud. And, you know, I want to point out, as I think I said, all the policies for Paul Vados, apparently because of his medical history, were accidental death policies. Meaning, if he died of a heart attack in the street, they weren't going to pay. The insurance company was never going to pay. He would only pay if he died in an accident, which is why they staged a hit and run. Um, the verdict is kind of confusing. Helen was apparently convicted by the jury pretty easily on the four counts that she faced. Then the jurors, that verdict was entered, and then the jurors continued deliberating. They convicted Olga on two counts, probably the conspiracy counts. It's not really clear from the the court opinion what counts were outstanding um so i just i'm guessing and then apparently a juror had a prior commitment and asked to be released from the jury uh because the trial had gone longer than they anticipated or the deliberations were going longer than they anticipated and so he was released the alternates had been kept at the courthouse and had been kept isolated while the main jury was deliberating. So one of the alternate jurors was brought in to replace the absent juror. And then the jury began deliberating from the beginning on the final two counts that remained undecided. Um, That jury was able to convict Olga on the final two counts. Again, I'm guessing that she was probably convicted pretty easily on the conspiracy counts, but the jurors perhaps had a harder time on the murder counts because they they couldn't, there wasn't any evidence that she was actually there when McDavid was killed. Um, and they don't really know on, on Vados either, so that may be. But I think phone calls 
there was a phone call from Helen's phone to Olga's phone, and the call was returned, and they spoke for three minutes. I think that was probably the, you know, the the fact that pushed that jury over the edge to convict her of the final two counts. Um, they were each sentenced to life without the possibility of parole on the murder counts. They were sentenced to 25 to life on the conspiracy counts. However, the 25 to life sentence was vacated because apparently in California, uh, they don't want you facing too much time. What? And so if you got two life without paroles, then that's all you're going to have. I don't okay. know. It doesn't make sense to me, but progressive hey, California, who knows? You know, and, in other words, they don't want you life without parole and then 25 years to life. And I believe the life without paroles are consecutive. So even if they were to become eligible on one, they would not be eligible on the second one. And, and these women were in their 70s. Uh, Olga was born, I think, in 33, and Helen was born in 31. Uh-huh. So they were in their late 70s. Right. When they were convicted. Um, and that is the, their age in the 70s is why the, the Los Angeles County District Attorney elected not to pursue the death penalty. Um even though they had special circumstances of uh, murder for financial gain and multiple murder. So um, the direct appeal was filed, and they basically challenged admission of toxicology testimony or toxicology results through the testimony of the director of the lab rather than the individual um, forensic scientists who performed the testing. The uh, 4th District Court of Appeal found that uh, the lab director oversaw the, ex- uh, oversaw the testing. He read the reports. He approved the reports. Um, I know he was involved in the process enough. Testimony was sufficient. Also, the reports, which are hearsay, were never admitted. Their argument was he had no firsthand knowledge of the testing or the results because he didn't perform the testing. But with expert witnesses, there is there is a leeway for them. They can review materials of others and use that to form an opinion. Um, they can talk about hearsay materials in some instances. You know, like a a a, a psychiatric expert testifying in the mitigation phase of a trial, a capital trial, can testify about what the defending its mother, sister, brother, father, told the expert about the defendant's upbringing. He doesn't have to have firsthand knowledge of mm-hmm. that. 
Uh, and and that's it works that way from a lot of expert witnesses. Uh, and then they also made a Fourth Amendment claim related to the admission of their custodial statement recorded at LAPD. They also argued that the statement was inadmissible because under federal law, any statements made prior to a probable cause hearing are not admissible. The Fourth District Court of Appeal in that instance found that um, they were facing state charges and they were tried in state court and the federal uh, rule or the federal procedure that they were relying on isn't applicable to state trials. And in fact, it actually specifically says this doesn't count in state court. Um, They also found that because they were arrested based on a federal arrest warrant, the determination of probable cause had already been made before they were even arrested. And then they argued uh, the prosecutor committed misconduct when she referred to Vados and McDavid being homeless and when she referred to uh, the fact that Vados' family did not have their remains um, and McDavid's family didn't have his remains. And Stella Vados, Paul Vados' daughter, was able to recover his remains and have them reburied with her family in a cemetery in Los Angeles. Um, what, Kenneth McDavid was cremated and nobody knows where his remains are. What the fuck? Okay. And so the court found that there there was sufficient evidence in the record presented by the prosecution as to the homelessness of Vados and McDavid, and there was also um, evidence in the record presented about the fact that the remains were uh, taken by Golay and or Rutterschmidt, not by their families and that they lied to do it because they represented themselves as the sole remaining living relatives of these men when that was untrue. So, um, you know, kind of a no harm, no foul. And then they, uh, they made an argue, an argument about the deliberation with the alternate juror on the final two counts. Uh, basically I think thinking that all eight counts should have been decided by the same identically same jury. And because it wasn't, we get a new trial. And the court found that because the court can take, you know, procedure permits them to take a verdict, a partial verdict, if the jury is unanimous. And they've rendered the verdict and then let the jury continue deliberating on any, any remaining open counts. And that's, that's an acceptable procedure, and everything was done correctly, and you know the jury was instructed that they would begin deliberations on those two, two, two counts from the beginning. Right. And that's what they did. Um, And then the case went before the California Supreme Court. So the 4th District Court of Appeal 
affirm the verdicts and sentences. Then on discretionary review, the California Supreme Court reviewed the toxicology, the admission of the toxicology testimony, and basically found that it was admissible, um, that the expert was, you know, clearly within the bounds of uh, acceptable practice for expert witnesses, and they affirmed the Fourth District Court of Appeals decision on that. And the remaining claims that were made to the Fourth District were not either not accepted by the court, uh, the Supreme Court, or were not even made to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a long chain of uh, requests for rehearing and, and denials uh, of review in their state direct appeal and post direct appeal. So then they moved to state post-conviction and unfortunately nothing state-wise, uh, those aren't reported and so you never have anything from an, in an opinion form, uh, or you very rarely have one. Uh, Rudder Schmidt claimed that her attorney was ineffective for failing to have an interpreter uh, help her during the trial. This claim was pretty much uh, dismissed because the judge had had conversations with Olga Olga had lived in this country for many years. She emigrated here in 1957. Um, She did not demonstrate to the judge that she had any problem with the English language. Okay. She was involved in a complicated insurance scheme and did not seem to have any problem with the English language. And um, I think probably her some of her trial document or some of her post conviction documents were done pro se, and they don't demonstrate a problem with the English language. So that one was pretty much, you know, because she never complained to the judge during the trial. You know, and, and, and Olga is not a little wilting flower that's going to sit quietly and be intimidated by the proceedings around her. If Olga didn't understand what was going on, Olga would have said out loud to anybody who would listen, I, I don't understand what's going on. What he say, what he say, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? Right. And, you know, she would have had no problem doing that the entire freaking trial, clear to the judge that she didn't understand. So, um, nor did she ever ask her attorney for an interpreter because she didn't understand. Nor did she complain that she didn't understand her attorney or that her attorney wasn't explaining things to her. So, you know, this is just basically a Hail Mary. Okay, English is my second language, so let's throw in that I don't speak good English anymore. Um, So that was denied. And then she claimed her attorney was ineffective for not having her subjected to a mental evaluation because 
she has been getting disability for a mental nervousness anxiety disorder. And while I don't know the exact reasons, I would say that probably the judge felt that you're scamming to get those disability benefits and the doctors bought it, (laughs) but that doesn't mean you weren't competent to commit the crime or to stand trial when you got caught. Um, Right. You know, and those kind of, those kind of mental emotional problems generally don't have any impact on legal sanity and or competence. Um, and I think, once again, you know, it's a failure of Olga's evidence. Um, and then she challenged the use of the custodial statement, uh, which was, uh, you know, also dismissed because Parker Center, while, you know, yeah, federal authorities taking you to Parker Center and putting you in an interrogation room might have been pushing the line on fair, it's still an acceptable practice. And right. there are legitimate reasons why they could have been taken to Parker Center <sighs> rather than to the nearest federal holding facility. Um, and then they also, she also raised the same prosecutorial misconduct. And, you know, again, those are going to, those two are going to kind of be dismissed because they've been dealt with on direct appeal. And, the you know state court is not going to revisit the issue um, because they don't find any problem with the way they were handled on direct appeal. Golay filed a claim of actual innocence. Um, you know Golay is the con artist. Golay has probably lived her entire life as a con artist, and so. She had basically, she came up with an alibi defense for the night Kenneth David, Kenneth McDavid was murdered. She claimed that, and her daughter and and her boyfriend uh, supported her on this, that she was at her daughter Kesha's house taking care of Kesha's three-year-old daughter Sophie on June 21st, 2005. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, but the time to bring the alibi in would have been at trial. A long time ago. Um, You know, actually, the time, you know, the time to really bring that alibi in would have been when you were sitting in Parker Center with Olga chewing you a new asshole. Right. Well, I couldn't have done that because I was I was taking care of Sophie with Kesha. I was there all night. I never left. Um, and she claimed that her attorney was ineffective because he pointed the finger at Kesha and then ruined her ability to testify as an alibi witness. She also claimed he was ineffective because the attorney did not do adequate investigation. If he had, he would have discovered McDavid was a drug dealer 
working with the Mexican mafia, and his death could have been the result of a drug deal going bad. It's like drug deals gone bad do not result in somebody being crushed by a vehicle that you called (laughs) or that someone using your AAA ID (laughs) had towed from near the murder scene the night of the murder. You know, Helen's Helen's whole story as it is as it has evolved ignores the underlying evidence against her. And this is you know, this is a common theme in a lot of post conviction litigation. They ignore the evidence and they rebrand the story. And anything that's inculpatory, just that it doesn't make it into the cut. So even to be explained. And she also claimed that at the time McDavid died, he was living with Olga. And they were engaged to be married. Ignoring the fact that she was always the fiance or former fiance. And then she also claimed that her attorney had an, uh, a, a conflict of interest because he had sexually harassed her. He had tried to kiss her. He had showed her his penis. Um, tried to have sex with her multiple times during the course of her trial, uh, which I call, I'm going to call bullshit, bullshit, bullshit on that one. Okay. Not only did this attorney represent her at trial, she had him representing her during direct appeal. Huh. Okay. So you'd think she probably would have gotten rid of him. Not only that, if this really happened, why would she not bring that to the attention of the judge immediately when it happened? Yeah, absolutely. That's illegal, I believe. And yeah. Uh, it, it's it's highly illegal, highly highly illegal. Um, so yeah, I I think she's a con artist, and I wouldn't be surprised if this attorney didn't get a few letters from Helen saying, "Hey, look, put money on my books, or I'm going to ruin you." Probably because she's a con artist, and then they they. Each went on to federal habeas court. Pretty much the same claims. I think Helen tried to throw in a few more claims that were um, were defaulted. Um, Olga may have tried to throw in a few claims that were defaulted because they weren't brought. They were never brought up in state court. And you can't bring up new claims in federal court. Um, and in fact, Helen filed a claim that she did dismiss because uh, it wasn't brought up in state court. Mm -hmm. And like I said, pretty much the same. And the federal magistrate judge uh, found that the California court's resolution of the, of the claims in state court was not unreasonable and not contrary to federal law, and therefore their federal habeas claims were denied. And they are in um, 
the last I saw, they are both serving their time at Chowchilla, which is where Betty Broderick is. Oh, shit. And where Dorothea Puente was until she passed away uh, three years ago. Dorothea Puente was a woman in Sacramento who ran a boarding house, and she took in people with Social Security. She poisoned them. She buried them in her backyard, and then she continued collecting their Social Security benefits. And she was caught many years later when one of her tenants had somebody in their life that gave a damn who called in a missing persons report. And when police came to talk to Dorothea Puente, uh, somehow or another, they ended up getting a warrant and digging in her backyard and found bodies that weren't their person, but had been there for a while. Shit. Yeah. So... Um, so that is Helen. They're they're at Chowchilla with Betty. Um, I I I don't know. I think they I think they initially had some issues because their case was high profile, but the media attention died down to a degree after their trial and so I think they're you know getting along pretty well they're both still alive let's see if California has their Department of Corrections online um, inmate locator got hop on I didn't think of looking at this until just now, so so that's pretty much yeah. That's Helen and that's Helen and Olga. Huh? They were uh, they were a pair to say the least. Yeah, they were. Um, and I, you know, like I said, it's 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 funny that they were they really they had no problem screwing each other. You know, they wanted to screw everybody. Okay, Helen is 89. She's at the California Institution for Women. Um, She's not eligible for parole consideration. And let's see, Rutterschmidt. No pictures. And uh, she's also at Central California Women's Facility. Oh, wait, she might be at a different place. Central California Women's Facility is in, no, that's Chalchilla. Let me see. Uh, Helen is also, no, she's at the California Institution for Women. She's in Corona. So she's ah, uh, at Chino Corona. Okay. Um, she, I think, 
I think that one has like a medical facility. So she's 89. Yeah, I was about to say, they're both older than fucking dirt at this point. Yeah. Um, She's 89, and she, I don't think, was as um, robust as uh, as Olga was. Because Olga, cops who were uh, who were surveilling her had a hard time keeping up with her when she went on her hikes. Okay. And there was one point one of the cops this was on one of the the uh, TV American Greed or something one of the cops said he was trailing her on a hike in the mountains and he lost her and he was freaking out and then he turned a bend and he found her behind the bushes taking a dump so yeah when you gotta go you gotta go you know, <laughs> Olga Olga like that's why I said Olga probably you know, being arrested and not having makeup on probably didn't really bother Olga that much. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't modest. No. Um, yeah, so that is Olga and uh, and uh, Helen. And that is, yeah, that's the end of the line for them. Mm-hmm. They've done their oh, yeah. federal habeas I mean, claims. It's over. Absent new evidence, absent somebody, you know, confessing and exonerating them, which, hey, I wouldn't put it past Helen to uh, to try to to try to work that out. Uh, but no, they'll 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 spend the rest of their lives in prison in California. Like I said, I think. I think Helen is in the medical facility. Or one that's a little bit easier. Chachel is pretty tough. So yeah. Um yeah, that's that's Helen and Olga. Certainly interesting pair there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the bad thing, you know, Paul Vados had a daughter that he had lost touch with um, either when he moved or she moved. Um, Kenneth McDavid had a brother and sister that he had lost touch with, um, you know, when he fell on hard times. And it's just a shame that they, you know, these were two vulnerable men and they took advantage big time. Right. You know, so um it is it is what it is. Huh. So um Any thoughts? Nothing past they were a pair. That's for damn sure. 
they were definitely a pair. They were were a hell of a pair. A pair and a piece of work. So, but they'll, and you know, it's, the irony is if they had just kept the money they made with Vados and never done it again, they probably never would have gotten shot, gotten caught, shot, caught. Because it was, it was Kenneth McDavid's death that kind of got the ball rolling to question the insurance policies and, of course, the common thread between Vados and McDavid, who didn't know each other, was Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. And then the multiple insurance policies. Right. And, you know, some of these were $50,000 policies and some of them were $60,000 policies and there were a couple $5,000 policies. But, you know, they had $250,000 policies. And Helen had an $800,000 policy that she upped to a million. On Kenneth McDavid, Helen made, I think, about $2 million, a little bit more than $2 million, and Olga made about 800000 in claims that were actually paid. Huh. Huh. You know, like I said, when when Paul Vados died, between them they they made claims worth about eight hundred thousand dollars. If they'd never done it again, then you know they would have never gotten caught, and they would have lived quite well because you know Helen had all this property. Although it, it is difficult when you own real estate to actually make money. Um, but uh, Ellen had the property. And, you know, hell, if she didn't want to try and, you know, get an income out of it, she could have sold it. Right, exactly. It's in Los Angeles, California. Exactly. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can make uh, quite a ton on that. What it was, what it was worth when she stole it from the guy's family in 1999. Yeah, it's <laughs> so it's probably worth you know three times that now. Yeah, at least. Um, so and she, you know, she drove a Mercedes SUV. She had a couple of ca- other cars. Um, she, you know, she didn't need it. She was just greedy. Olga was right. You were greedy. Yeah. I wish I could have found a, a good clip of of Olga tearing her new ass. That was that was entertaining. So, but I didn't. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, you ready to call it a night? Let's do it. Did Haley ever bring you your food? Yeah, see, you didn't even notice I was gone. I know, I didn't. So, all right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, 
You can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks on Tuesday, December 1st, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 25, State of Florida versus James Milton Daly. On May 5th, 1985, Daly and a friend, Jack Piercy, picked Shelly and her twin sister up while the teenagers were hitchhiking in Indian Rock Beach, Florida. After visiting a bar with the girls, the group returned to the house shared by Piercy, Daly, and Piercy's pregnant girlfriend. Later that night, Shelly left with Piercy and Daly. The following day, she was found dead in a canal. We'll talk about Daly's 1987 conviction, his direct appeals, and post-conviction claims, including the recent media allegations that his conviction was based on the false testimony of a fellow inmate. Until then, have a safe and happy Thanksgiving, and be safe. Good night.